class of 2014 from Marion Local Strategy. Represent uh, this past semester. But, um, yeah, Jason Brunswick. So I leave on Tuesday for Denver, and my parents are in Europe. So I'm recording this because my mom asked me to, and I'm a good son. So I'd love to. Forget me. All right, awesome. Uh, so my name is Jason, as I said, I graduated from Marion Local, just graduated from Ohio State, just finished up my enlistment in the Army, uh, and on Tuesday I'll be flying out to Denver uh, to begin studying for the priesthood in an 11-year formation program. Should be pretty wild, I'll talk a little bit about it later. Uh, so, in May, I was here, and this is just like freaking awesome to see how much this has grown, how many more people are coming, that's really cool. Uh, I've been really involved in Ohio State in the campus ministry for my last four years, but I haven't done a whole lot back here just because I've been so busy, and so I've been praying for this area so much. But in May, I came back, and I talked to the group uh, basically about who the Father is. And so I wanted to talk about identity, and so I wanted to basically say that we need to see God not so much as a judge who's looking down waiting for us to mess up, but a Father who loves us. And if God is a Father, what that means is that we're His sons, that we're His daughters, that we're His beloved sons and daughters, whom He cares for and whom He is proud of. Uh, but also that means that the Father loves us, he not only loves us, but he yearns for us. That he wants to be with us. And that he actually rejoices in us. And that he delights in us. And so, like, if you think of, like, a parent holding a little infant, and, like, even though they're pooping in their arms, and they're kind of super annoying. <laughs> like, they love them, and they smile, and they laugh. It's kind of us and God. We poop in his arms a lot, but he still loves us anyway. And he delights in us. He laughs at us. Like, the Father smiles when we smile. He loves us a lot. We're his children. We have to stop looking at, like, Christianity as just a bunch of rules to follow so I can get to heaven. We have to start looking at it as a relationship with Jesus Christ that actually brings us to heaven. That actually is heaven here on earth. So that's what I'm going to be talking a little bit about tonight. Uh, we're going to kind of have two different parts of the talk. So in the first part, I'm going to start out kind of on the lighter side. We're going to talk about eternity, uh, which would be really awesome. <laughs> we're going to try to. Uh, so basically, I want to talk about what's at stake. Like what's at stake and why does this actually matter? Why should we care? And then in the second part, uh, I didn't really know what to talk about until I went to see The Lion King with my brother Logan on Thursday. So we're going to talk a lot about The Lion King, which is going to be awesome. And then we're going to be talking about, basically, what it, does eternity mean for my life now? How does it impact me? How does it change the way I actually live my everyday life? What does that actually mean? So, I want to start out, though, with a story. Has anybody here ever heard of the Martyrs of Sebast? No? Okay, they're not super famous. Uh, so in the 4th century, Constantinople, before that, made Christianity legal. But all of a sudden, all these emperors started hating Christianity because they're like, all these Christians are taking the power. They're all ganging up together. We're not in charge of everyone anymore. They're listening to their bishops. So Christians, as we know, started getting persecuted. And so there were 40 men in particular that were really bold, had a really strong brotherhood, and they were evangelizing the entire empire of Rome. And so Emperor Licinius came up to them, brought them into his palace, and he said, renounce your faith, renounce your faith now, worship my idols, or I'm going to have you all tortured and killed. And he threw them in a dungeon to decide what they were going to do. And the youngest one wrote a letter, and in it he talked to his, they actually talked to their families, and they said, don't worry about us, don't be sad for us. We go through one common strife in this life so we can win the eternal prize. So that we can win the eternal good things of God and his kingdom. And so they sent Emperor Licinius this uh, letter, he's ticked because it's going to embarrass him. Like, he no longer has the power, he knows that like, he's not scared, these guys aren't scared of him. And so what he does is he brings them out to a frozen lake. Surrounded by guards, and he says, if you guys don't bow down to me, and you guys don't bow down to Rome, I'm going to strip you naked, and I'm going to send you on the frozen lake until you all die. What's cool about this is before he could strip them naked, as he said he would, they ripped their clothes off and threw it at his feet. 
and they ran out onto the lake together, all 40 of them. And they said, you can't take my life because I've already given it to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to take from me. You have no power over me. And so he's ticked about this, obviously, and they're spending a couple days out there. And what he does is he brings out a warm bath of water, and he's like, if all you do is renounce your faith, you can come to the side, you can jump in this warm bath, we'll give you clothes, we'll like give you money, whatever you want. And all 40 were sticking close except for one. There was one that was like day by day, he's creeping off further and further to the side, and eventually the temptation's too much, and he runs off and runs, renounces his faith, and jumps in the warm bath. But because of the temperature shock, he actually killed himself in the bath, and he died. But one of the Roman guards seeing this is so inspired that he's like, holy crap, these guys are living for something really important. And he actually took out all of his soldier garb, threw his sword at the emperor's feet, and runs out with the 40 martyrs of Sebastian. He becomes number 40 and dies with them as a Christian. Pretty freaking cool, right? Um, they actually, they didn't die on the lake. They weren't dying when it was frozen. They weren't freezing to death. And so he took them off so he could cut them up and burn them. And one of their mothers came, and as she's loading him up on the wagon to help him out because he can barely walk, she doesn't say, she doesn't like try to comfort him or tell him to like deny his faith so he can come home. She says, don't lose the crown that awaits you. Don't give up. It's worth it. And I think there's a lot we can take away from this story. So like, we can talk about how strong they are as brothers, that when we stick together, we're so much stronger than if we try to do something ourselves. I don't know if anybody could go out on a lake by themselves for days like that without giving in. And when we start creeping away from our community, we do things ourselves, bad things happen, and temptations get to us. We could talk about how like our witness together, when we're strong together, brings people in, even Roman soldiers. But what I want to talk about tonight is that these soldiers didn't lose their life because they'd already given it to Jesus. They just found someone worth giving it to. And they weren't thinking about this life. They weren't living for this life anymore. They were living for eternal life. They were living for the eternal good things of God, the prize that came after this life. Because they had an unshakable hope in the glory of God. So St. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 4. And what he says, he's talking about how hard it is to be a Christian. He's talking about how much he's being persecuted, how much he's being struck down, how everyone's against him. But he says, therefore, we're not discouraged. This is only a momentary light affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. So what's St. Paul saying? He's saying all these momentary light afflictions, this guy's getting literally beaten and stoned. Like there's one point he gets stoned to death and dragged out of a city. They thought he was dead. He gets back up, gets his stuff, and goes to the next city. And he's being stoned almost to death. And he calls these momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that's to come. Because he knows there's an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So what I want to do, at least in the first part of this tonight, is I want us to think a little bit about eternity. And I want us to change our focus from things that are seen to things that are unseen. Things that are transitory to things that are eternal. To stop like complaining in life about how hard these momentary afflictions are and start looking at the eternal weight of glory that actually awaits us if we remain faithful. So, now I'm going to try to explain what eternity is. <laughs> uh, if anybody has any idea what eternity is after this, come talk to me, because I have no flipping clue. Um, I was hanging out with Chris the other night, and him and I were looking through a telescope at the stars, and he's like telling me how these like lights are thousands of years away, and it just takes that long for the light to travel because they're so far away, and he's like telling me that the universe, basically, that's like what we can see is like maybe one one-thousandth of the galaxy and that the observable universe is thousands, maybe millions of galaxies. And I like, can't even wrap my head around this. I'm like, how flipping big is the observable universe? Uh, and even though like, I can't wrap my mind around it, I can't wrap my mind around something that's finite. So we see finite distances, and as big as the observable universe is, 
it's still finite, and I can't even wrap my mind around that. So how are we going to wrap our mind around something that's infinite, something that's eternal? Uh, so I can't, so I turn to Boethius and St. Thomas Aquinas, and people are a lot smarter than me. Um, try to explain it. Basically, what time is, time is a measure of change. And so in time, we go from one moment to the next moment to the next moment. But when you're in eternity, you're outside of time. You're outside of space. So essentially, as crazy as this sounds, you're in the same infinite moment without ever changing for all of eternity. It's like you possess all of life simultaneously. It's like some people have like thoughts that when you get to heaven, you're going to have like a bright flash in your eyes and your entire life is going to be like lived or flashed before your eyes in a moment. It's like that for all eternity. Like you possess all of time simultaneously at the same moment. It's like a perfect and everlasting now where you never change. Um, basically, God lives in this eternal now. So basically, if you think God is as present right now in this moment to Moses in the burning bush as he is to us, as he is to like flying cars and you know, like fudge hot tubs, whatever's going to be here in 500 years. <laughs> if I'm ever an engineer, it'll happen. Um, but God is like fully present to everything, and when we die, we participate in this eternity. We participate in this eternal now that never changes. So the best way I have to explain this is if you think of think of a timeline. In a timeline, we're on the timeline, and you go from point A to point B to point C. But before you go to point C, you got to go to point B. We're going down the timeline. We go in succession. When we think of eternity, a lot of times I think we think of like an infinite timeline that just stretches on and on, but that's actually like not the right thing to put it. That's actually, um, like what eternity is, is the paper itself. And so the white paper engulfs point A as it engulfs B and C and Z. It is fully present to all of them at the same moment. It encompasses all of it. And that's essentially what eternity is. So, yeah, eternity is wacky. And if you think you understand this and you think you're totally on board with it and in a pretty good spot, then you're really off the deep end. You have no idea what you're thinking right now. Um, if nothing makes sense whatsoever, you're in good company. That's fine. Um, but my hope is that a lot of us are like confused maybe, but kind of intrigued and realize that this is really, really flipping important. And that this is something that like we should try to understand. Because I want to talk about like the implications of this. The implications is whenever we die, we're in the same moment. There's no change in eternity. And so however we live this life decides where we go for all eternity. We can't repent after we die. We can't turn back. We don't go up to the gates of heaven and say, God, I'm really sorry. I should have done this and this. Please let me do this. Because there's no change. We're the exact same. As much as we love God when we die is how much we're going to love God for all eternity. And sure, there's like purgatory, there's purification. But like essentially, whenever we die, how we live our life determines where we go for all of eternity. And that makes it really freaking important. That like as small as this world is compared to the whole universe, even more so as small as our time in this life is compared to all of eternity, this little bit of time depends how we spend all of this. Everything. And that makes this life really, really important, as small as what it is. It's when we die, we all know there's two places we can go. We can go to heaven, we can go to hell. Um, or we have like two different states of beings we can be in. And it, just, it drives me crazy because growing up, like a lot of people I talked to didn't even believe in hell. They didn't even believe in the devil. We never heard any homilies. We never heard anything preached about it. And I understand like hell is a scary topic. And maybe it's something you don't want to tell kids. But, but I think that's setting us up in a really bad spot. So I was a combat engineer for six years in the Army. And if we go out on a mission and all of a sudden we get ambushed, we had no idea that there were like enemy strongholds and there were machine guns and there were mortars and they had aircraft. We got like lit up and all of us pretty much would have died on the mission if it was real life because we didn't know what was coming. We got blindsided. But if we went into a mission, we had intel, and we were like, okay, we know enemies are set up here and here. These are their tactics. This is what they're going to do. 
we can take different routes, we can do different things, we can fight back against it and actually make progress. And this is exactly what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to think that he doesn't exist, that hell doesn't exist, that no matter what we do in this life, we're going to go to heaven because God loves us so much. And so that we just are totally ignorant of him. Because he wants to work in small, subtle ways that we don't realize. Because they can, he can ambush us out of nowhere if we don't see it coming. I understand this, like, might feel uncomfortable. And if it does, that's a good thing because we realize it's really, really an important big deal. Uh, it makes me uncomfortable. That's totally fine. So being uncomfortable is fine, but being ignorant of hell is not fine. Because that's setting us up in a really bad spot. So I hear a lot of people and they're like, well, why would God create a hell? Why would God allow hell? And there's a lot of good theological answers for that. I'm not going to go into it in this talk. But what I'm going to say is the reason I believe in hell is because Jesus believes in hell. It's because Jesus talks about it. He clearly tells us in Scripture over and over and over again that hell exists. In Luke 16, he talks about the eternal torment. In Mark 9, he talks about the unquenchable fire. In Matthew 13, he talks about the gnashing of teeth and anguish and regret. In Luke 16, he talks about the place of no return. In Matthew 10, he talks about Gehenna. What Gehenna was, was it was this trash pit outside Jerusalem where everyone would throw their trash that they don't want anymore. And there was this perpetual fire that kept burning and like gnats and maggots that would just eat away at the trash that nobody wanted. That's what he calls hell. Jesus speaks of hell at least 13 times in the Gospels. There's over 60 verses in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about hell. And the reason he talks about it over and over again is because he doesn't want us to get ambushed. He wants us to know this is like a real thing that could actually happen. Jesus is fully merciful. He loves us a lot. He's going to do everything we can to get to heaven. He was like, he was brutally tortured and died for us to get to heaven. Like, yeah, we think of Jesus' crucifixion and we see nice, cute crucifixes where he looks like pretty good. But like when he was lashed, he was lashed with like animal bones and shards of glass. The skin was ripped off his back. When he was like hanging on the cross, what happens is like your, your shoulders take so much weight being up that your shoulders pop out of your sockets. And since your shoulders can't hold it up, your sockets begin to compress down on your chest. And your chest squeezes you to death. It squeezes your young lungs and you can't breathe. And then your lungs start filling up with fluid. So it's like that feeling, feeling you have when you feel like you're drowning in a pool. That's what Jesus felt for hours and hours on a cross. As he was like internally drowning in his lungs. And like he's nailed to the cross. Like scripture says he barely looks like he's human. And what he does for hours over and over again, even though his feet are nailed, is he pushes himself up so he can take the pressure off, takes a breath, and comes back down. He does this over and over and over again for hours. That's how much Jesus loves us, and that's how much he wants us to get to heaven. And so we have hope, but we have to take this seriously. And so to demonstrate this, um, I want to bring up a monstrance. Chris, can you bring it up? I need someone I can trust because this is a really expensive monstrance. So if you don't know what a monstrance is, a monstrance <laughs> is basically um, this big gold stand that you use to hold the Eucharist. So when you're in Eucharistic adoration, um, you can have Jesus in the Eucharist on the altar, and you can pray with him and be physically present with him. And, yeah, the priest told me, Father Jim said that we have to wear gloves because they just did a $12,000 replating renovation on this thing. So I have no idea how much it's worth. I have no idea how much they bought it for, but they just renovated it for $12,000. So this one's pretty nice. Monstrances um, are beautiful. So as he brings this up, I want to talk about Matthew 13, when Jesus talks about hell. What Jesus says... He talks about the end of time. He says the angels will come, and he says they'll sort between us. The angels will come, and they'll sort between, it says, the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is wailing and grinding of teeth. And so some translations say righteous, wicked. Some translations say good and bad. Uh, the translation that's literal in the Greek actually means 
beautiful and grotesque. You're either beautiful or you're grotesque. Your soul is either beautiful or grotesque at the end of the time, and that's how the angels sort between you. Um, so I want to demonstrate this with a monstrance. This one's different than one I've ever seen, but I like it. And I'm not allowed to touch it. I'm in a lot of trouble. So, we have this gorgeous monster. This is all sorts of different kinds. This one's super cool. A lot of them have like gems and diamonds or pearls, pearls all the way around it. Um, monstrances are expensive. And monstrances have one purpose they're created with. Anybody know what that purpose is? Anyone want to take a guess? To hold the Eucharist. It's to hold Jesus, have Jesus at the center, right? That's the only purpose of it. And so, Jesus is on the altar. We have the Eucharist inside. And this is beautiful, right? Like, it's beautiful now, but with Jesus in the center, it's far more beautiful. What would it look like if we took a $100 bill and stuck it in the center? It would be grotesque, right? Because it was never made to hold a $100 bill. What if we took like our high school diploma or our college grades and stuck it in the center? Never made to hold that. <laughs> um, let's say we take even more, I think, like the most grotesque. What if I take a picture of my own face and I put it in the center and put it on the altar? That's grotesque. We're not made to worship my face. Beautiful as it is, we're not made to worship my face. Um, okay, but like, even good things. Just think about like your good friends or your family. Think about your future husband or wife, your future children. Take a picture of them, put it in the middle of the monstrance. It's grotesque because it was never made to hold that. You were never made to worship those. You were never made to put those at the center. But like, we're living monstrances. St. Paul says that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, and we were created for one reason. The only reason we were created was to worship Jesus Christ. And when we, we choose what we put at the center of our monstrance, and we put anything else at the center of our monstrance, whether it's our reputation or our image or success or money or even good things like family and friends, it's grotesque because Jesus is no longer at the center. You can bring that back. Thank you. <laughs> so monstrance is made for one thing. And what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what's in the middle of the monstrance if it's not Jesus Christ. It's beautiful or it's grotesque. It's Jesus or it's not. And when we go to the final judgment at the end of time, there's going to be one question that's going to be asked of us to see if we're beautiful or grotesque. God or not God? If it's not God, it doesn't matter what it is, no matter how good it is, no matter how holy it is, no matter how much you love someone or cared about someone, if it's not God, it doesn't matter. We're only made for God. God has to be at the center of our lives. He has to be. That's the only question that matters in the final judgment. So we have different responses we can make to this. And the common response I hear is, I don't like that. That doesn't seem like God. It doesn't seem like a good teaching. I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm just going to kind of whine and pout about it. Or like, I'm just not going to believe that. But Jesus clearly says it's true. And so what I want to say what we need to do tonight is we need to trust what Jesus says, accept reality, and say, what am I going to do now about it? And what I've done, where I realized this four years ago, is I said, I'm going to do everything I can flipping do in this life so I can get to heaven. I'm going to do everything I can to put Jesus at the center of my life. And not only my life, but all my friends and all my family. Because I don't want them to fall into hell. I don't want them to be eternally separated from Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us will do the same thing. That we want Jesus so bad at the center of our monstrance. Not only for our lives, but also for our families and for our friends. And while it's like good that we do that so people don't go to hell, it's even better that we do it because we simply want Jesus at the center, because we know it's what we're created to do, it's who we are. And we like see the beauty and the goodness of having Jesus at the center of our lives. And actually it's better to live a life that you're yearning for heaven and yearning for God, 
than that you're afraid of hell. So when I was in high school football, I remember the first 10 games of the season in the regular season, I wanted every game, and I was honestly really nervous because there were such high expectations for us, and I like didn't want to let anyone down. The whole community was expecting us to go 15-0 and win state, and I played with like fear. I basically played, and I played hard because I was afraid of losing. And what happened is like I still played pretty well. Our team played pretty well. We didn't lose any games, but the games weren't as fun as they could have been, at least not until we got a lead because I was nervous and I was kind of scared for them. When playoffs came, I was reflecting, and I was like, that's really stupid of me. I should just have fun. <laughs> and like, So I decided, instead of playing with a fear of losing, I played because I really wanted to win. I really wanted to celebrate with my brothers. I really wanted to have a good time. What happened is I actually played better. Our team played better. And I had a lot more fun doing it. I was a lot more joyful doing it. So can we get to heaven because we're afraid of hell and we don't want to be there? Sure, I would say so. We probably can. And it's a beginning. Like Fear of hell is a really good beginning. Like recognizes that we need God. But it's not where we want to end up. We want to be living life because we love God so much and we want to be with Him eternally. And that's going to lead to a greater joy in life. That's going to lead to a greater happiness in life than just being afraid of hell. As I said, Jesus wants us in heaven more than anybody. He wants us in heaven more than we want to be in heaven. And He's going to give us everything we need. So if you think about heaven, heaven is a little bit more simple than eternity to think about. Uh, I love Pope Benedict. He's this mastermind of the church, one of the greatest minds in the history of the church. He describes heaven in three words. He says, heaven is God. That's it. Heaven is God. Heaven is the fullness of God. It's living in God and God living in us. It's living in his love. And so, I think he draws this from John 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they should know the one true God and the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, knowing the one true God and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. So when I read this, the first thing I took away from this is that Jesus was talking in third person, the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. I don't know why that's significant, I just think it's kind of cool that Jesus talked in third person randomly. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy that. But what he says is eternal life is knowing God. So there's two different ways to know. Has anyone taken Spanish in here before? Yeah. I have a friend that took Spanish for three years in high school, totally blew it off, thought it was a joke, and now he's going to Spain to play international basketball and doesn't know a lick of Spanish. <laughs> God's sense of humor is awesome. Um, does anybody remember how to say uh, to know in Spanish? There's two words for it. Does anyone know either one? Saber. Saber, and what's the other one? Somebody know. You guys are smart. Come on. Kind of here. Okay, what's the difference? Any brave soul? What's that? <laughs> Sam? Yes. So conocer is like to be familiar with, to know a person. Saber is to know facts. Like, I know the facts about something. And we don't have this, um, we don't have two words in the English language. We just say to know, but it could be either one. And in Greek, when Jesus says eternal life is to know the Father, he's not saying it's to know a lot of things about the Father. He says it's to have a relationship, it's to be familiar with the Father. That's what eternal life is. I think a lot of us go through life and we think we're going to have, like, I don't know, some trivia game when we get to the gates of heaven. And God's going to be like, do you know enough about me? Uh, I don't know. Are you going to get in? And it's like, it's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing God. It's not knowing things about Jesus Christ. It's about knowing Jesus Christ. It's about being familiar with him. And so, like, they use the word to know, like, Abraham knew Sarah, and they begot a child. Like, the way the Bible uses that is actually they were so intimate with one another. They use it, like, as their word for, like, marital intimacy and having a child. That's how, like, deep that word goes. And the Greek word gnosko basically says that we need, like, eternal life is intimacy with the Father. It's union. It's becoming one with the Father. And while we can't fully achieve that 
till heaven, we can begin right now. But it's not enough to know about God. The way James puts it is, you believe in God, you believe God is one, you do well. Even demons believe that, and they tremble. Like, think about it. Some people think, like, all I need to do to get to heaven is believe God exists. The devil believes God exists, too. Doesn't do a whole lot for him. The devil believes Jesus Christ is God. Doesn't do a whole lot for him. It's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing Jesus Christ and having a relationship. And that's why this is so important, because that begins in this life. So in this life, I can choose Jesus Christ. I can choose to have a relationship with him. I can choose to go to Mass. I can choose to pray. I can choose to seek intimacy with him and desire him. And when I choose Jesus Christ, when I choose to pray, when I choose to go to Mass, I choose Jesus in this life. I choose to pray in this life. I'm choosing heaven in the next. When I choose to turn away from Jesus in this life and not follow him, and not seek intimacy or a relationship with him, I'm choosing hell in the next. And as we said, this life determines everything. And that's why this is so important. So what we do in this life, whether we choose Jesus Christ and want to follow him and have a desire for it and seek a relationship with him or don't, determines everything that happens for the rest of eternity. And there's going to be a glorious reward in heaven for this. Like St. Francis of Assisi, I heard his story once. I don't know if it's true or not, but I love it. Um, he asked God, he's like, God, give me a little taste of heaven. I just want to know what heaven's like. I'm trying so hard. And God is like, Francis, I would love to, but I cannot. You would die. <laughs> Francis is like pretty persistent, right? He's like, God, please, just a little taste. And eventually God's like, okay, I will send you the lowest angel, like from the lowest hierarchy of angels, with the smallest heart from the heavenly choir, like give you one low note. I don't know what happened, but St. Francis was in a coma for three days after that. They couldn't wake him up. And so like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> he was in a coma for three days. Like, one note from the heavenly choir. Uh, like St. Paul talks about heaven. And he says, as many sufferings as we have in this life, as much as we go through, it's worth nothing compared to the glories of heaven. He talks about that in Romans 8. Um, Revelation 21, I love the book of Revelation. The way Revelation describes it is saying that when we get to heaven, God's dwelling will be with the human race. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain. The old order has passed away. No more death, no more wailing, no more pain, no more suffering, no more broken hearts, no more tears, no more fear, perfect bliss and perfect glory. And that's what awaits us if we seek this eternal weight of glory, if we seek this crown. So what I'm going to do um, is in a minute, we're going to shut our eyes for about 60 seconds. And I want us all to ask God to give us a glimpse of heaven. Because I think God, like in the, in the Psalms, it says that we taste and see the goodness of God. And I think God allows us to taste and see the goodness of heaven sometimes, and we don't even, like, recognize that it's God, and we don't recognize how good it is. So, like, have you guys ever been in a friend's house? Like, I think about hanging out with friends when I was a kid, and it's like, time passes, but it doesn't feel like it passes. Like, four hours pass, and you're like, what the heck, it's four o'clock, are you serious? And it's because, like, you're in such bliss, you don't even think it. That's, like, what heaven's going to be like for all eternity. We're in such bliss that time actually doesn't pass. Um, but, so, yeah, I want us all to shut our eyes, um, and I want us all just to ask for the Father. To bring us back to a moment in this life where he showed us the peace of heaven. So, Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would remind us of the times we've tasted and seen of your goodness. That you would remind us 
of the beauty and the goodness of the family and friends you put in our life and the relationships you've given us. Beautiful moments of sunsets or trips or nights at home or conversations when time didn't seem to pass. When there was no pain, no suffering, there was no hardship, when all anxieties were gone and all we felt was comfort, peace, and joy, we knew that everything was going to be okay. Father, I just pray that you bring us back right now. Let us taste and see your goodness. What St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, talking about the glory of heaven, this incredible glory as God shows us. He says, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard, what has not entered the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him. Far more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. Heaven is the goal of our entire faith. And 1 Peter, St. Peter says, the goal of our entire faith is the salvation of our soul. It's to get to heaven and spend eternity. It's what we were created to do. As I said, that's a choice we make. It's a choice we make by the way we live our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a quick break, I think, um, and then we'll have a shorter second half of the talk, not as long. Um, basically, what I want our takeaway to be from this first half is that not only do we fear hell, but we yearn for heaven, and we yearn for God. And we realize that when we choose God in this life, we're choosing heaven in the next. And that would change our focus from these momentary afflictions we feel to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in the and so, we're going to take a break, maybe five minutes, and then after that, we're going to talk about, like, now that we talked about what's at stake, we're going to talk about why does this matter in my life and how can I actually live this out, so we can get a little bit more practical sources um, of, like, how we can do this. So. All right, sweet. So we're going to start back in. Um, so, to kind of recap um, in a different way, Jesus talks about the narrow path in Matthew 7, and he says there's a narrow path that few find, but it leads to life. And there's a broad path that many find that leads to destruction. And he says, you have the choice. A lot of people are going this way. I want you to go this way, though. And I just kind of want to tell you guys where I was at for years, because maybe it's where a lot of you guys are at. Um, but basically, what I was thinking is, I want to be on the, I'll say this is the narrow path. I want to be on the narrow path just enough so I can get to heaven, because I know I want heaven. But I want to be on the broad path as much as I can in this life, because it looks a lot more fun and a lot more exciting. And it looks like people are having a much better time. So I was scared because I thought the narrow path is really hard, maybe not even possible. And if I do it, it's going to be really boring, probably going to be pretty lonely. And the broad path looks pretty fun. It looks kind of exciting, and there's a lot of people over here. And basically what it is, I lack trust. That like when God was telling me, I'm going to bless you if you take the narrow path. I'm going to give you the friends. I'm going to give you the fullness of life. In John 10.10, 10, uh, he says that the thief has come to steal and to destroy, but I have come to give you life and life to the full. And I would hear things like this from like religion teachers and whatever, and I'd just be like, yeah, whatever. But I, like, I didn't trust Jesus that he would actually give me life to the full. And it actually took me a long time to really trust that Jesus would give me life to the full. So like, through high school and into college, I was just like wrapped up in myself. I was wrapped up in success. So like, I wanted so badly to be happy, which is what we all want. Um, we all just want happiness. Everything we do is literally so we become happy. Um, but the world tells us all these things that make us happy. And so like in high school and going into college, I did everything the world said would make me happy. And I was like, OK, have a lot of friends. Check, I got a lot of friends. Okay, have like 
older adults and teachers and coaches respect you and think highly of you. Check. Okay, be a good athlete. Like I was a three-time state champion. I was on the All-Ohio team. I was our team captain. Check. Get really good grades. Check. Make a lot of money and like prosper. Do well. Study engineering because it made the most money and it was like prestigious. Do really well on that. Check. And I'm like doing all these things and checking the boxes and I'm like, I'm still not fulfilled. I'm still not happy. And it's like, I am for a little bit, but there's something deep inside me that was unsettled. So that's when I decided I enlisted in the army because I was like, I was starting to figure things out. I was like, if I want to be happy, I can serve other people. It's about something bigger than myself. And I love the sacrificial nature of soldiers I'd see on TV uh, that like laid their lives down for other people. But I went there and like, I still wasn't fulfilled. Like, I don't say these things to brag. I say these things that you can have, because you can have everything the world tells you um, you can have. Whether it's like, again, like whether it's friends or success, whether it's sports or grades, whether it's a beautiful girlfriend or a handsome boyfriend. Um, <laughs> I've never had a handsome boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Uh, you can have all these things though, and there's like something in you that's yearning for more. Because again, like the monsters, we were never created to put them at the center. And so years and years of this went by. And basically I realized at one point that I have to make a choice and I have to trust that Jesus is worth it. So there came a point I was walking back from class one random day, like a Thursday after an exam, um, my freshman year, and I never really prayed. I didn't know how to talk to God, didn't understand it. I didn't understand this was God, but this was like one of the biggest moments of my life. And I just remember walking back and I almost stopped because I was so convicted that there was so much meaning and purpose for my life and I wasn't living any of it out. And at the same time, I was so convicted that there were a lot of people in this life that were really relying on me. And I was letting all of them down because I was living a selfish life focused on myself. And like as a man, that like ripped my heart, that people were relying on me and I was letting them down. And I remember I just like threw my hands up and I'm like, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Like, show me how, show me where. I'll do anything you want. Just show me where there's meaning and purpose. Show me who's relying on me. And it took a long time, so like eventually I found the Catholic Campus Ministry, but like I was one person on Saturday night, I was another person on Sunday morning, and I had like one foot on both sides trying to go down each path, because I didn't realize the broad path and the narrow path go in opposite directions. You can't go down one path and cling to the other path. Eventually we have to make a choice. And Jesus is patient. Jesus loves us a lot. But eventually we have to make a choice. We can't sit in the middle. We can't stay there because we don't know when we're going to die. Like, I don't know, I could die on my car ride home tonight. Am I living a life where I'm seeking Jesus and I'm seeking heaven? I hope that every moment I am so that I'm confident if I die right now, I'm ready for heaven. I'm ready for Jesus. I'm hoping I can die right now with a smile on my face. That, like, at the end of my life when I die, I'm going to be smiling knowing that I gave everything I had to this life and I have no regrets, confident where I'm going in the next life. Like, it's hard whenever people are terrified of death because they don't understand what happens after death, or they haven't lived a life that merits anything after death. Or they haven't lived a life worth living in the first place. But anyway, I had to make a choice, and it took me a long time. But eventually, when I made it, things started changing, and like I became happier and more fulfilled than I've ever been. But what I realized is that like we're not made to live a double life. We're not made to live one way on Sunday morning and another way on Saturday night or on Wednesday. Like It was exhausting after a while. And eventually, I just realized I was made for essentially. So, who here has seen The Lion King? Anybody? Raise your hands high. Or the new one. The old one. Who here seen The New Lion King? Yes? Okay. Go see it. Seriously. Full Lottie's night. Next Thursday, we're watching The Lion King. You guys are watching The Lion King. I'm not. <laughs> Lion King is incredible. The new one's awesome. 
Uh, so what I want to do is I want to go through what I saw as the storyline of The Lion King, and then I want to show how it totally relates to our lives, because Disney nailed something on the spot. And so, for those of you who haven't seen it, bear with me and act like you know what's going on. Uh, so, Simba is born, and Simba is born, and his father is the king. Simba is the heir of a kingdom. And he knows that when he gets older, he's going to become the king, and he's going to rule this kingdom. He desires us from a young age. He's eager and he's excited. He wants to do everything with his dad. He wants to show everyone how strong he is. He wants to be a lion right now because he knows how much awaits him. As excited as he is, he makes some mistakes and Scar, his uncle, comes in and basically, spoiler alert, his dad dies, Scar blames it on him and he runs away. Why? Because he's really afraid and because he's really hurt. So he runs away and he runs into two people, Pumbaa and Timon. I don't know why you say this, but Chris calls them the stereotypical frat guys. <laughs> I have nothing against frats. There's some frats that are really good, but uh, that was Chris, not me. <laughs> so, what Pimba, Kumba, and Timon, I'm going to, Kumba and Timon say, basically they have this line, Akuna Matata. Who knows what Akuna Matata means? No worries, right? They come in and they say, there's no rules. No responsibilities. This is freedom, doing whatever you want. Life is a line. It starts and it ends. Nothing before, nothing after. It doesn't matter. In life, you can only worry about yourself. Don't worry about other people. That's exhausting. That's really hard. Just do what makes you feel good. Your life doesn't affect others. The past, don't worry about dealing with the past. That's really hard. Just have fun in the future. Do whatever you want. And basically, they embrace this like carefree lifestyle full of pleasure and full of only thinking about themselves because it's easy and it's comfortable. Easy and it's comfortable, and they can do whatever the heck they want, and I don't think it affects other people. And there's like one point where it like literally almost like broke my heart because, especially in the new movie, because you see Simba as this giant lion when he grows up. There's one point where he pounces on butterflies and scares them and starts laughing, and it's like sad. I'm like, you are a massive lion and you are the king of Pride Rock, and you think you're living like a happy life by scaring butterflies. Like, are you serious? Like, there's so much more for you. Like, seriously. I'm a vegetarian too, and I'm like, you can hunt gazelles. There's, yeah. Um, but it's sad. And I remember there's a line as he's going there um, where someone tells him, you can't run from your destiny, Simba. And Nala comes back to him. Nala's like a childhood friend who he eventually has a cup with. Um, and basically, she doesn't reveal to him who he is because he already knows who he is. She's just buried him like, under a bunch of stuff. She just helps him remember who he is. She helps him remember, you're the king. You're in charge of Pride Rock. You're created for more, and other people are relying on you. And then he meets Rafiki, um, what do you call it? The, um, monkey. Yeah, crazy baboon. Uh, and Rafiki has to do with looking water, and Simba sees his father in himself. And he hears his father speak to him, and he realizes he has to go back to Pride Rock because he's made for more, and other people are relying on him. And so he goes back, and he sees Pride Rock, and it's desolate. There's nothing. Like, everything is just, like, all the dirt is, it's just dirt. Like, all the grass is gone, trees are gone, all the animals are gone. It's sad. And he knows it's not going to be easy to build it up. He's going to have to drive out the hyenas. He's going to have to face his fears and his wounds. But he doesn't see Pride Rock as it is right now. He sees Pride Rock as it could be. And he knows it's still his duty in life. He knows it's still what he was created to do. So he goes back and makes the sacrifices. The sacrifices are freaking worth it. Because glory returns to Pride Rock. And there's this beautiful scene at the end where it's, like, more glorious than it was at the beginning where all the animals are back, and where Simba and Nala have their own little cub who's like raised up by Rafiki. Um, and not only that, but like Timon and Pumbaa are there. 
And so these two guys living this like life um, totally for themselves are now finding meaning and purpose. What I want to say is actually this is like a beautiful illustration of my life. It explains my life better than I ever could. And maybe some others. And maybe we're all at different spots. Uh, starting out, does anyone remember, was anyone here for Father Witt's talk about baptism? Okay, Father Witt says we're baptized three things. What are they? Priest, prophet, and king. Priest, prophet, and king. We're baptized priest, prophet, and king. So Simba is baptized at the beginning. Rafiki, this priestly figure who has all this great wisdom from an outside source that comes to like life and death events, comes and makes a mark on his forehead and raises him up. It's baptism. He's baptized priest, prophet, and king. I want to focus on king for this. And so we are also prop, like priests, prophets, and kings. St. Paul says if we're sons, we're also heirs. Because if we're sons to the father, to the king of all the universe, that means we're also an heir to the universe. And we're not just sons, we're also heirs. And I think as kids, like we realize that we're made for so much more. And so like kids watch superhero movies, like Marvel movies, or like I used to watch these heroic war movies when I was younger. And I was so inspired and I wanted to be them because I knew I was made for something big, something important. I wanted to like sacrifice for other people. I wanted to lay my life down to help others. Um, but it's like kids get this where like they want to be police officers or firefighters or in the military or nurses or doctors. Like they want to do these things because they know it's about helping others and serving others. That kids get it. It's just like built into us that we know it's about serving others. When we go through our life, just like Simba, who goes from being really eager and has like these hurts and wounds and pains and these fears, and all of a sudden like something happens and we kind of like creep into inside of ourselves. Or maybe it's just really subtle and life kind of weighs us down. We're not really sure if we can do it. We don't know if we're enough. We don't know if we're worth it. And we start a lot of times, I started seeking this comfortable life full of pleasure because it was really easy and sacrifice was really hard. And I became selfish and I just looked at myself no rules, no responsibilities. I'm going to worry about myself. I'm going to live this carefree life. But again, we can't run from our destiny. As sad as it is, like, just like whenever I thought it was really sad that Simba's pouncing on butterflies, like, the father doesn't look at us as a judge when we sin. He doesn't look like at us as a judge ready to strike us because he's angry. He looks at us, like, with a broken heart of a father. and says, my son, my daughter, I've created you for so much more. Stop chasing butterflies. You are a priest. You are a prophet. You are a king. I've created you to rule my kingdom, and I need you. And it breaks his heart when he sees us sin, not because he's mad at us, but because he knows that we're made for more. And he knows that other people are relying on us. And so, same with my life. I found this point where I was like, wow, I'm really down living for myself. I'm going through a tough time. I'm pretty sad. But holy crap, I'm made for more. I was like, I have meaning and purpose. People are relying on me. And just like we can't run from our destiny because God chases us down. The difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world is every other religion, man seeks God. Christianity, God seeks man. God came to us to seek us out when we were lost. So we think about prayer as us seeking God. It's actually God seeking us and us being found. That's the difference. Is God wants us so bad in his kingdom that he seeks us and searches us out. And then I began to have these novel moments where I was like not revealing who I was, but I began to like remember who I actually was. And I had this like, moment in the water where like the Father speaks to me, and I see the Father in me, and I realize I'm made for more, and that others are relying on me, and I had to go back to Pride Rock, and I couldn't keep living my life like I was. Back to Pride Rock, and it looks pretty bad sometimes. Like, I know we live in a, maybe a bit of a bubble in this area. I think it's a buzz term, but it's true in a lot of ways. Um, like, I talked to people at Ohio State, or this summer, I can't think of summer camp, I'm talking to middle schoolers and high schoolers who are so young. And when you actually get past a superficial conversation, they know they can trust you and they open up to you. 
it's really hard because people are going through depression and anxiety and they're worried about everything in life and they're afraid of things. They don't know if they're enough. They don't know if they're worth anything in life. They don't know if people care about them. They don't know if they have meaning and purpose. Like as I'm writing this talk, I remember I was sitting at a coffee shop and all these people are coming in from Crown and there are like tons of people just sitting by themselves scrolling through their phone as they eat. I'm like, there's 20 of you guys. Talk to each other, do something. Like we're not made to sit by ourselves and scroll. We were made for so much more. And it like broke my heart seeing that like people are hurting and people are alone. People are seeking more and they don't even realize it. And that's on a small scale, but you look at a big scale, like husbands and wives don't understand what it means to love one another anymore. We don't understand what a commitment means. We don't understand like what it means to say, I will be with you until the rest of my life. And so the divorce rate skyrockets because when things get hard, people leave each other. Fathers don't know how to lay their lives out for their sons because they don't understand that my life's not about myself, it's about them now. And so fathers leave their children when things get hard because they're selfish and they're living for themselves. And we look at New York, and like New York is trying to like legalize abortion to the point where you can literally kill a baby after it leaves the mother's womb. It's freaking crazy. Our world is in shambles. It's a mess right now. And it's like we need to open our eyes because like, yeah, we live here, but like whether it's on a small scale or a big scale, there's a lot of work to be done, and our world is really hurting. And it's not just that we're created for more, but that people need us. People are actually really relying on us. People see this and we try to numb ourselves. We try to numb ourselves by like wasting time watching Netflix um, or like being, I'm not saying Netflix is bad, um, but I'd say like we numb ourselves and numb our hearts by watching a lot of Netflix or by like being in relationships with alcohol or drugs or focusing so much on grades that we don't think about how bad we're hurting. We focus so much on success that we don't think about how lonely we are. But just like Simba didn't see Pride Rock as what it was, he saw it as what it could be. We need to look at the world not as what it is right now, but what it could be. What it originally was in the Garden of Eden and what God wants it to be. And realize that we actually have a role to play in that. So the church really needs us. But I'm going to say, the reason the church is hurting, it's not because of the scandals. It's not because of these hard moral stances that we're not budging on. It's not because the culture is so jacked up. The reason the church is hurting is because Christians look just like everybody else. It's that people come and they hear talks and they hear all these things about Jesus and they're like, follow Jesus. He's going to give you the fullness of joy. He's going to give you peace. He's the solution to all your problems. He'll heal your wounds. He'll free you from your chains. He'll give you power and you'll live a new life. But people look around, all these people they know to be Christians, and we look just like everybody else. We're not living our lives any differently. And so what our witness says, what our lives say is, following Jesus doesn't make me any different than you. And so everyone looks at that and they're just like, okay, well, what's the point of going to Mass on Sunday? What's the point of praying if it doesn't change anything? It sounds like a waste of time to me. And so what we need to do is we need to be like a new witness. Like we need to witness our lives just by like simply being full of joy. Like there's so many people out of Ohio State in my classes that'll come up to me. I don't even speak to God about them. And they're like, Jason, why are you so happy? Why are you always so joyful? Why do you not complain all the time? People in the army ask me that all the time. Like, why are you always so positive? And that's my moment when I can tell them about Jesus because Jesus is the reason I'm full of joy. He's the reason why I'm always at peace and nothing can bring me down. Like, my phone just cracked a week and a half ago. I was, like, frustrated at first. Literally, within a couple minutes, I'm just laughing. I'm like, this is hilarious. Great. Thanks. <laughs> we need to help people see that the narrow life is an adventure. That the narrow life's not boring. That the narrow life can actually be a ton of fun. And that it's actually the fullness of life, just like what Jesus says it is. But in order to do this, just like when Simba came back, it didn't automatically happen. He had to fight for it. Because success demands sacrifice. 
Success demands sacrifice. Sacrifice comes before success. So that has to go in. He has to fight the hyenas away, all the demons. He has to face Scar, cast him out, cast the devil out. He has to face all of his fears, all of his wounds, everything that happens. He has to come back and reconcile to his people. And there's a lot of work done to rebuild the kingdom. We have a lot of work to do to rebuild the kingdom. Maybe we have to face wounds and scars and hurts and fears, but it's going to be worth it. And just like anything in life, like think of the things you're most proud of in life. Think of like a college degree or grades or family or friends that you have. Think about like sports. Like I remember going through two days my senior year and talking to people from other schools. And I was like, man, that sounds like it's a lot easier. They don't run as much as us. Yikes. kind of wish I was there. But when it like December 3rd hits and I'm playing in the state championship and they've been sitting on the couch for five weeks, I'm like, wow, that sacrifice was worth it. I'm glad I did that. It's like that with all of life. Anything that's like a great reward, anything we're really proud of, is going to take sacrifice. So if heaven is the greatest thing in life, and if Jesus brings us joy and peace and goodness, why would we not think it's going to take sacrifice? Why would we not think it's going to be hard? And so it might be different things. It might be like big choices. Like I need to start going to Mass on Sunday. I need to try to pray every day. Maybe it's smaller choices. Maybe it's like the Netflix movies I'm watching actually aren't good for me. Maybe it's the music I'm listening to. That stuff affects us. Like, I remember working with a guy at Ohio State, he was addicted to pornography. And he's like, Jason, I don't understand. Like, I'm trying so hard, but I keep being tempted. And we start talking, and I find out he's watching Game of Thrones every night. And I'm like, you're essentially watching Netflix pornography, and you're wondering why you're tempted all the time. Like, stop watching that crap. And when they throw that stuff out, like, they find success. Like, those things affect us. Whether it's like Netflix or music, maybe it's friends or like what we do on the weekends. Like whenever I started making the decision to stop playing one foot on each path and actually go down the narrow path, I had to like cut off some of my friendships. Not that I ignored them, I still saw them, but I didn't hang out with them on Saturday night. Because we can't hang out with all broad path friends and expect to walk the narrow path. Like it's not gonna happen. We become who we surround ourselves with. And it was hard at first, sure, it felt a little lonely, but after a while I was like, wow. I'm making better friends than I've ever had in my life. These are awesome. And I'm like, wow, I'm happier on a Wednesday night than I used to be on a Saturday night. Wow, I don't feel like crap on Sunday morning. I don't, this is going to be the best day ever. Like, <laughs> like things began to change. And so when I was praying for us, what the Father told me he wanted you guys to hear is simply that it's worth it. That if you give him a chance and you give him a yes and you take just one little step, he's going to prove himself to you that it's worth it. And then he can take another little step. Before you know it, you've gotten really far, but he just wants you to know that as hard as it is, the sacrifice you make is worth it. We have to want it. Like, there's one time I had a talk at Ohio State, someone asked, I want you guys to close your eyes and ask God why you're not living more of a saintly life, why you're not holier right now uh, than you are. And I remember I shut my eyes and immediately the first thing I heard is, it's because you don't want it bad enough. Yikes. God was right though, I just didn't want it bad enough. If I wanted it bad enough, I would have made those tough decisions earlier. So what I can say is, it is worth it. It's been worth it in my life. Like, so 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though we do not know God, we believe in him. We have an inexpressible and glorious joy. And that's like my life right now. It's an inexpressible joy. Like I'm trying, I'm wrecking myself on the way home from Columbus today to tell you guys how blessed I am and how full of life I'm living. And I can't even put it into words. Like I walk into Mass yesterday. I, I was um, at a wedding yesterday in Columbus. And I see like not even half of my old friends from Columbus I just see a fraction of them, and in the middle of the Mass, I just break down in gratitude because I'm so grateful for such incredible friends who care so much about me. Memories start flooding back of all these things we would do and how much fun we had, and how we had the fullness of life and how much joy we had. Like late night conversations, or like adventures doing stupid stuff throughout Columbus, or like running retreats and bringing people to Jesus and something that mattered. 
And I'm like breaking down during Mass because there's this inexpressible joy that fills me, a glorious joy. And that joy doesn't have to wait to heaven. It's not that we die and then God gives us heaven. It starts right now. Just like the relationship with Jesus starts right now, the fruits of heaven start right now. Heaven is amongst us right now. And so, like, we can experience the joy of heaven right now. And Philippians, St. Paul says that we obtain peace that surpasses understanding. Um, so the world says peace comes from understanding. St. Paul says, no, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, peace surpasses understanding. So, like, I'm about to leave um, to head to Denver to study to be a priest. And I don't know a lot about what's going to happen. Um, I have no idea. I'm going to go on a poverty pilgrimage in Europe at some point where I'm going to bring with me a drawstring bag, a change of clothes, a Bible, a breviary, maybe a water bottle, and that's it. And a plane ticket home for one month, and I have a 1,000 miles to go. I don't understand what's going to happen. I have no idea, but I'm not the least bit anxious about it. Not the least bit. Like, saying goodbye to friends and family has been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But, like, there's this deep, like, peace and joy that surpasses all understanding that I have in the midst of it. Because I know I'm following God, and I know I'm doing His will. So... We're wrapping up. Um, what I want to say is, like, we can trust the Father. We can trust that it's worth it. Because, like, when my discernment started, I was at a first confession, and I was looking at these priests, and I was inspired. And I'm like, wow, that looks awesome. And I heard a little voice in my head say, you know, Jason, you can do that too. And I was just like, thank God I can be a priest. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. I won't get married or have kids. Sounds great. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Not what I said. Literally, the first word I said were, crap. Gotta be kidding me. Um, and I was like trying to convince myself that it wasn't God, it was me. Um, but I was at the point where I was like, Father, I trust you. I know you have what's best for me. I know you know me better than I know myself, and I know you desire my happiness more than I desire my own happiness. So whatever you want from me, I'll do. All cards are off the table. You do whatever you want, and I'll follow you because I trust you, even if the plan seems all out of whack. But within probably six months, six to nine months of saying that, being a priest was the only thing I could ever see myself doing. It brings me so much joy so much excitement because I'm beginning to see what I'm created for. And it's like we can trust that he knows what's happening in our lives. We can trust that he wants the best for us. So to close out um, I hope we're convicted or at least ready to ponder three different things. Uh, the first is that there's an eternal weight of glory that's worth all the momentary afflictions we're going to face in this life. And that if we think about eternity rather than thinking about these momentary afflictions, our lives are going to change. And heaven's actually going to come down to us. We're going to begin to live heaven right now. The second is that we're made for so much more than what we saw to live for. Right now, I'm made for so much more than what I'm living for right now. I see every single day to be what I'm made to do. And I get closer and closer, but God has such big plans for my life. He has such big plans for your life. The third one, what the Father wants you to know, that though there's sacrifices, it's worth it. And it's worth it, not just in the next life, but in this life. Because we not only experience the fruits of heaven in the next life after we die, but we also experience them right now. And that we can begin to live this life right now. So I think the things we have to do, if we actually want to respond, we want to do something that shows that, like, we mean it. Um, the thing James says, he says, be doers of the word, not only hearers. Because if you're only hearers of the word, you're merely deceiving yourselves. Faith without works is dead. If I don't, if I hear these things and I'm inspired, or like I think, yeah, that's right, but I don't do anything, it doesn't really mean much. So, first thing we got to do is we got to start praying. Right? We got to go to mass on Sundays. We have to pray. If heaven is Jesus Christ and knowing God, being in a relationship with God, we've got to start seeking a relationship. I had no idea how to pray when I was in high school. No idea when I started college, but I found a Bible study. 
I'm like, wow, I like you guys. You guys are pretty cool. Teach me how to read the Bible. Hey, you pray a lot. Can you teach me how to pray? But there's people in here that are really seeking Jesus and know how to pray. Like, ask somebody, how do you pray? Join a Bible study. There's women's groups, men's groups of Bible studies that are happening. Join one and learn. Like, prayer is hard at first. When you start learning how to communicate with God, it's the most wildly exciting thing ever. I was talking to Sarah Caney, who ran at Ohio State. Um, and I was saying it's like running. When you first start running, it really sucks. Like, I went on a run today, I'm hurting right now. I didn't realize how bad I got over the summer. Um, it sucks. But if I keep doing it for a few weeks, eventually I'm going to, like, enjoy it. And I'm going to want to do it. And maybe I'll even invite people with me because I think it's so good. Um, and then I have a group of people. Prayer is the same way. If you learn how to do it, you start doing it more and more. Like, it's my favorite part of the day. Mass and prayer. Favorite part of the day. I love it. Weird as that sounds. I am weird. That's fine. Um, prayer and then community. Um, we can't do this alone. We can't be with everybody on the broad path all the time and expect to be on the narrow path. We need to find friends that are worth being around because we become who our friends are. Awesome group here. A lot of really cool people doing a lot of really cool things. Find some friends. Play sand volleyball on Wednesday. It's awesome. <laughs> 6.30 at the park. Race time. Um, the last thing is we just need to start making choices for heaven. We just need to start making choices so we're not just hearers of the word, but that we're doers of the word. If Jesus is patient. He loves us. He wants us there more than we do. But we can't just presume that we're going to get to heaven in delay because we don't know when we're going to die. And eternity is so big that I don't want to gamble with my eternity. I don't want to gamble with my eternity because that means a lot. And this life means a lot. Now, Judgment Day, there's no excuses. It's you and God. Is it God or is it not God? Who is at the center of my mind since I've lived my life? So it's worth it, guys. In this life and in the next, it's worth it, I promise you. Close in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for creating us. For so much. I thank you for the ways you've blessed us our entire lives. I thank you for the ways you've blessed this community. I thank you for the ways you've blessed every individual in here. I thank you for creating us for so much, for giving us a life full of joy and excitement. I thank you for being so patient with us. Father, I just pray that you would open hearts up right now, that every person in this room, myself included, would know the goodness of following you, would trust you, and we'd have the grace to just take one step toward you, whatever that might be. I pray that you would open our hearts up to hear your voice in prayer, and that we would begin to live eternal life knowing you even right now. I pray that you would take away all fear in the name of Jesus Christ, that the broad path is full of exciting adventure. I pray that you would take away fear of being lonely or being afraid of being on the narrow path. I just pray that you would come and show that you can heal wounds, that you can break chains, that you bring freedom, and that you bring power. I ask that you give us holy friendships. So you bless this group and just convict our hearts that it's worth following you. So we pray to you, our Father, whom we love and whom we are so loved by. We pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.